warm greetings to our brethren, friends, and family around the world. We're enjoying spring weather here in Charlotte, particularly azaleas all over the city and dogwood trees. It's just glorious and beautiful around the city. In just a few days, we'll be observing God's Spring Festival. And that begins, of course, with the Passover. It's the season that reminds us of God's forgiveness, of His mercy, and of His grace. God is the author of grace. And yet we've been criticized for allegedly preaching and writing too much about grace. Today, as we prepare for the Passover, let's consider some important questions. What is grace? Who is the author of grace? Does grace abrogate God's laws? Is grace an active part of a Christian's life? Is grace an active part of your life? The title of today's sermon is Living Grace. Perhaps you would want to also subtitle it Biblical Grace. My first impressive introduction to God's grace in the Bible occurred after the Feast of Tabernacles in 1973. You can be turning to Romans, the first chapter. My wife and I, with Grandma Meredith, visited Ambassador College, the United Kingdom. Dr. Meredith was Deputy Chancellor in Brickedwood, England. He graciously toured us around London. And at the feast in southwest England, which was Minehead, uh, we, after that, we had our first tour of Europe. We took Grandma Meredith to Amsterdam, to Dusseldorf, Germany, where we had a, an office for the Worldwide Church of God, headed by Mr. and Mrs. Frank Schnee. And after that, we went to Paris, and then to Geneva, where Dr. Meredith came over from Bricket Wood for the Sabbath in Switzerland. We rented a car there in Geneva, and drove on through Switzerland, and my wife saw this beautiful mountain that's, uh, she said, Mount Blanc, that's the tallest mountain in Europe. We, we need to go see that. Well, the only way you could see it was to go through the mountain into Italy, seven miles straight through the mountain, and then on the other side you could look back and see glorious Mount Blanc. So we did that, and I was kind of... Uh, Encouraged by that, having taken Italian language at Ambassador College for a couple of years, my first time in Italy, and it was just a joy. We drove back into Switzerland and then up to Zermatt, where we saw the Matterhorn. And I, as a little boy, had seen that in the movies, and I always dreamed of seeing the Matterhorn, this giant crag of a mountain, one of the most impressive mountains on, on earth. After that, we drove over the Alps to Milan, Italy, and uh, returned in the rental car. Our flight was late to Rome, but we finally got to the Cavalieri Hilton Hotel in Rome about midnight that night. And this is our first visit to Rome, and I'm excited because I, of course, learned a little bit of Italian. And with Grandma Meredith, we needed two rooms. So here we are checking into the hotel at midnight, and Grandma's room was 668. And my room was 666. And I was troubled. I was saying, I'm not the beast. What's going on here? And I was a little upset, wondering, what is going on? My first trip to Rome, and we're in room 666. 
Well, I started reading for comfort's sake. I started reading the, the book of Romans. If you have your Bible open to Romans 1. And I finally started reading verse 7 of Romans 1. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And I thought, well, as far as I know, my wife and I are the only saints in Rome. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That comforted me totally because I took it as a message from God the Father to me and my wife. Grace and peace. It was so very, very comforting. We just really began then from that point on to enjoy Rome. But grace became for me a more important factor in my life over that period of time. You might turn to Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6. I had a teenage friend one time, and he was reading the Plain Truth magazine and studying the writings of Mr. Armstrong. He was attending a Protestant church at that time, and he thought he would ask his minister some questions. So he asked his minister whether it was necessary to keep the law. And the pastor told him, of course not. You don't need to keep the law. You're under grace. And Robert asked him to define sin, which he did in a very vague way. But Robert, having studied church literature, was able to tell him, First John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. And so... Then Robert quoted to him Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that is, transgressing the law, that grace may abound? My teenage friend Robert felt that he had a very successful visit with his pastor and, of course, did not attend after that time. But a few years ago, when I gave a sermon on grace... One of our members told me afterwards that when she knew that I was going to speak about grace, that it just turned her off. She was just going to listen because the topic was on grace. Why? Because her, our former association had spoken so much about it and the wrong aspect of it, of course, and it just discouraged her. So some of our brethren may have been hurt by an apostate teaching, a twisting of the biblical teaching of grace, but the true grace of the Bible, the true grace of God, is one of God's most marvelous gifts. Let's understand, grace is not just a New Testament concept. The New Testament and Christ are particularly have emphasized grace and its relation to salvation. But grace is not owned, if you will, by the Protestants. And yet some of us, when we think of a biblical term, we automatically think, oh, that's the... Protestant scripture. No, it's God's scripture, but they have twisted it in a way that has affected us negatively. Let's turn back to Genesis 6 and verse 5. Some of you know what that is all about. You see, God has always extended grace, and here was Noah. Genesis 6 and verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. 
So the Eternal said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, verse 8, Genesis 6, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace has been around for thousands of years. God's grace preserved humanity through Noah. And if it were not for God's grace, we wouldn't be here today. I hope you're thankful for our common ancestor, Noah. Uh, Thank God that we have found grace in the eyes of the Eternal. So, brethren, I pray that none of you allows the hurts of the past or apostasies that afflicted so many to generate a superstitious bias against the grace of God. That bias, at the least, can stunt your spiritual growth and, at the worst, can take you out of God's church and put you into a lake of fire. Look at this warning in Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. We have count the cost when we're baptized. We realize that we are either going to be in God's kingdom or in a lake of fire. There's no way halfway in between once we commit ourselves to go all the way. And we have that faith. But we still need to be sobered by the reality of our commitment. Hebrews 10 And verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And so the false doctrine of law or grace, we'll comment on that a little later, tries to do away with God's law. But God says the new covenant is that I will write my laws. And to their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, verse 17, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is no remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. God is just. He's not going to let individuals who have committed an unpardonable sin and have sealed their character with evil, wickedness, hate, and all kinds of perversions to live eternally. They will be burned up, destroyed forever. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So we need to be very careful that some of us who have been tainted by the apostate heresies of the past don't have a bias against God's grace. He warns us not to have that kind of attitude to do insult the spirit of grace. So how much, how important is God's word? And of course, we're trembling before God's word, Isaiah 66, verse 2. When we study the Bible on the topic of grace, it's going to have positive and wonderful, comforting, loving meaning to all of us, just as it did to my wife and me back in Rome in 1973, but even more so. So we don't treat God's forgiveness, His grace, lightly. 
What is grace? Well, of course, we look at the Bible for the definition and for its purpose. The Dictionary of Paul in his letters, page 372, makes this comment about grace. It's a Greek word, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Quote, in Pauline usage, the word charis carries the basic sense of favor. So if you want a synonym for grace, you might think of God's favor. And when God or Christ is a subject acting in grace toward humankind, it is undeserved favor. Do we deserve God's favor? Well, of course we don't. And we realize the Passover coming up, that Christ shed his blood for us. He died that we might be forgiven. We didn't deserve that. It was God's mercy, his favor, his unmerited pardon, his gift towards us. I might just read here from the Holman Bible Dictionary about Charis. Only in the New Testament does it come to have the familiar sense which grace bears for Christians. And then <clears throat> the word gracious, we think about grace, but also gracious uh, is in the Bible uh, 32 times in 31 verses. And that is the definition of gracious is marked by kindness and courtesy. And you think of people who are gracious. I just had a phone call the other day and talked to a fellow minister uh, some states far away and asked him to do a favor. And in my mind, he was so cooperative, so willing to help out and solve the problem. In my mind, he was gracious. It's, it's so wonderful to have a friend or a fellow brother or sister in Christ who is gracious. And then, of course, there is another term, graceful, which has to do with maybe the flow. We think of the spring recital we had here in the ballet and how graceful it was. My wife and I will be going to uh, the Charlotte Symphony tonight, and the uh, critique by Steve Brown uh, in the Charlotte Observer this morning said the following. It's a Tchaikovsky uh, evening. The Neapolitan dance from Swan Lake put the spotlight on Brian Weingartner, the orchestra's new principal trumpeter, actually playing a cornet here. We had a small cornet here played this morning by um, Mr. King, who tossed it off with warmth and finesse. That was just one spot among many where the orchestra was as graceful as in the Rococo variations. When Warren Green brought out lyricism and introspection, the orchestra played with delicacy and poise that it hasn't always had. The critic always has to have a little dig in there somehow or other. But they played gracefully. And when you think of people who are people who are gracious, those who have that grace and kindness and courtesy in their lives. How important is grace to God? The word grace in the Bible, both in the New King, uh, King James and uh, that is in Old Testament, New Testament, there are 148 times the word grace appears in 137 verses. As I mentioned, gracious occurs 37 times or 32 times in 31 verses. Let's take a look at the conflict that Christians face when they think about the subject of law of grace. Let's turn to Romans, the sixth chapter. So grace is God's favor. It's his kindness. It's his mercy. It's all of his blessings. It's his favor. 
Romans, the sixth chapter. Here in Romans 6 is the famous scripture that Protestants use to say that the law is done away and they're saved by grace only or by faith only. Romans 6 and verse 14. For those who are of the law are heirs. Faith is made, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So again, if you say there is no law, then there's no sin, as I mentioned before in a previous sermon, then there's no need for a savior. So you cannot ever say the law is done away, otherwise you're saying there's no sin. And that's this particular verse you need to mark it in your Bible. Verse 15 of Romans 4, I'm reading, sorry, I was supposed to be reading Romans 6. But all things work together for good. Romans 8, verse 28. You, I was looking for this scripture anyway. Um, Romans 4, 15. You want to mark that in your Bible. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. All right, let me turn to the correct page now. Romans 6 and verse 14. Romans 6 and verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So therefore, the law is done away. What does it mean that you are not under the law, but under grace? Read the context, and you read previous to this, we're talking about being slaves of sin. Verse 13, for example, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. See, you're dead because the law claimed your life because of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so if you sinned, you have the law has a claim on you, and that's your life. So now that you're no longer have that claim on you, then you are under grace. Verse 15, what then shall we sin? Shall we continue to transgress God's law? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. And, of course, uh, the Apostle Paul uses another expression, God forbid that that happens. I might just mention, I, we had uh, recently a, a good commentary <clears throat> on the website by Mr. Seselka called Grace and Obedience. He uh, comments on <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And he writes in his commentary, you can click on, just go to tomorrowsworld.org and click on the, uh, co the current commentary. And then on the left side, you'll have another opportunity to click on commentary and that will give you the archived or the previous commentaries. And you can find this one on our website at tomorrowsworld.org of Grace and Obedience by Wyatt Seselka. He mentions the key to understanding these points is that many have been convinced to assume a false dichotomy. They wonder about grace or obedience when the Bible teaches the interrelationship of grace and obedience. Grace does not give us a right to sin, he writes. Paul asked whether Christians should continue in sin so grace should abound. He answered definitively, certainly not. And that's a scripture that we read earlier, Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, one that you should know by heart. Rather, 
Continuing the commentary, by our Christian faith, we uphold the law, Romans 3, verse 31. And remember the telecast I did on the Sabbath. We showed the two tablets of the Ten Commandments in the historic synagogue, not the synagogue, it's like next to the synagogue, the historic uh, church building in Newport, Rhode Island, where the Sabbatarians kept. And they put the Ten Commandments, and right under the last of the Tenth Commandment, wrote the scripture, Romans 3.31. Do we make the, void law, the, make the law void through faith? No, certainly not. We establish the law. That's Romans 3, verse 31. And so the Sabbatarians, even in the earlier years of Rhode Island, understood the difference between law and grace. Continuing the commentary, Rather, by our Christian faith, we uphold the law, Romans 3.31. If we sin, we commit lawlessness. We break God's law, 1 John 3.4. We cannot break a law that does not exist. Instead, we use the Holy Spirit that God has given to us, and through that Spirit we grow in grace and righteousness, able to receive God's gift of eternal life, Romans 6, verses 20 through 22. For further study on this vital subject, read our informative Tomorrow's World article, Obedience versus Grace, question mark, that's in the July-August 2011 Tomorrow's World magazine, or watch our telecast, Law or Grace. And so I clicked on the telecast, Law or Grace, and found Dr. Meredith's program that he taped back in 2001. Uh, he looked a little younger then. It was uh, about 11 or 12 years ago. But I just clicked it on, and just Dr. Meredith hits the subject powerfully right from the get-go, to use a Texas expression. This is the tease. What is the greatest error of modern Christianity, Dr. Meredith challenges them. Do you know? What one idea has deceived millions of people, my friends, and cut them off from God himself? I'm not exaggerating. Why is this such a universal deception? And why are people so easily deceived by the false teaching regarding law or grace? You need to know. Stay tuned. So I hope you'll watch that telecast. That's uh, all you need to do is go on our website and click on, uh, I'll tell you, the easiest way to find it is to go on our website, tomorrowsworld.org, and the upper right-hand part is the search bar. And type in that law or grace question mark, and immediately coming up on the screen will be the first line, Ten Commandment booklet, and the second line, Dr. Meredith's telecast on law or grace. Just click on that, and voila, uh, there is Dr. Meredith immediately. But it's a, a topic that is just, as he points out, is just so vital that has deceived so many around the world over a period of time. So we need to understand the benefits and the dynamics of grace. It isn't law or grace, it's law and grace. We've discussed that subject along the lines of faith and works. It isn't faith or works. I think I've commented on this before, but uh, James, the second chapter, where the Apostle James says, I will show you my faith by my works. And the commentator, Barclay, in his commentary on James, writes this, page 76, not either or, but both and. And I notice some of us, in talking with conversations with some of us, hearing us, are deceived by the false 
argument of either or. It's either this or it's either that. It's either law or it's grace. It's either faith or it's works. No, it's both and, not either or. And as Barclay goes on to say, it is not a case of either faith or works. It is necessarily a case of both faith and works. In the well-proportional life, there must be thought and action. There must be prayer and effort. So again, we don't want to be deceived by the false arguments that so many uh, promote in bringing all these heresies. I just want to give you a little bit of the background here of grace from uh, the uh, Anchor Bible Dictionary. And uh, just to give an overview, grace is the favor of God to human beings. The subject of grace in the Old Testament is too vast for comprehensive treatment. Since creation, the redemption and election of Israel, and the gift of the law are all acts of divine favor, a full treatment of grace would have to examine these primal gracious acts of God and much else in the Old Testament. And it is a vast subject, so I'll be speaking on this for the next few hours. But no, I, I, it, it, it's a wonderful topic. And I hope, brethren, that you will be studying into it with, with all your heart and understand the elements of how important is it to you. We are not under the law, but we are under grace. But the new covenant, God writes his laws on our hearts and on our minds because we're being conformed to the very image of Christ. Let's continue here in Romans, the sixth chapter. Verse 15, what then, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under law, but under grace? Certainly not. We will not continue to transgress God's law. Verse 18, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And some of our apostates in the past said, I'm free, I'm free. I'm free from having to keep the Sabbath. I'm free from having to tithe. I'm free from having to keep the annual holy days and festivals. What they were saying is they were free from righteousness and have now become slaves of transgressing God's law, slaves of sin. So it's either one or the other. You're a slave of righteousness or you're a slave of sin. Which is it? The Apostle Paul continues, verse 22, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So we want to seek God's righteousness. And that's a sermon we have, sermon number 683, Seek God's Righteousness. And then verse 23, the memorization verse you all know, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the new covenant, God writes his laws on our hearts and on our minds, as we read in Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Then why should we keep the law? Well, because it shows God's way of love. It's a way of give. It's a way of honoring and loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's a way of loving our neighbors as ourselves. But there is, again, that false approach to grace. Let's turn to Jude. Uh, used to, uh, <clears throat> we used to have ministers say, well, let's turn to the book of Hezekiah. But uh, we'll turn to the book of Jude. <clears throat> there is no book of Hezekiah, by the way. So I hope you won't be turning to that. Jude, <clears throat> verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago 
were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The NIP commentary states this, They assume that salvation by grace gives them the right to sin without restraint. And isn't that what's happening in many of the grace heretic churches? Either because God in His grace will freely forgive all their sins, or because sin, by contrast, magnifies the grace of God. And there were those who said, we're just going to sin all the more because it magnifies God's grace and mercy. Well, that's a heresy, and of course certainly not anything that we would want to occur in our own lives. So there is a type of false grace, or even cheap grace. Uh, Dr. Meredith uses that term in his booklet on the Antichrist. He writes, but when men cleverly misuse grace, teaching cheap grace, without real repentance from sin, it is the very essence of the doctrine of the Antichrist. This false concept has allowed millions of professing Christians to go through life regularly and habitually disobeying the Ten Commandments, yet still assuming they are good Christians. So that the expression cheap grace came from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was, uh, he was in uh, Germany and was taken to one of the concentration camps. He had written a book, The Cost of... A discipleship. He writes, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, baptism without church discipline. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. So a very graphic description of cheap grace and costly grace. Now what are some of the benefits and how can you actively participate in God's grace? Why does God favor you? And what does grace mean to you? Of course, it means God's favor. It means that you've been forgiven of all your past sins and that you can begin now to grow and overcome in the favor and the grace of God. But why does God favor you? He favors you because of John 3.16. He favors you because you've repented and accepted Christ's blood. Let's turn to 1 John, the third chapter. He favors you because he's begotten you as his children. 1 John 3, in verse 1. Remember that God is love, and that love is expressed by relationships. It's a relationship 
of us towards our Father in heaven and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Just that fact alone is evidence that He loves you. He's called you His children. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're going to see God the Father. We're going to see Jesus Christ glorified. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He, that is God and Christ, are pure. And turn over to James, the first chapter, James 1. Oh, there are many reasons why God favors you, but obviously if we are his children, he loves us and he favors us. James, the first chapter, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will... He brought us forth, or as the King James has it, more specifically, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Oh, God of his own will looked at all the seven billion people here on the face of the earth, looked at you, and said, this person, this young man, this young woman, this old man, this old woman, I love and I'm going to call that person and give him an understanding. And I will expect that that person will respond to my love, will repent, be baptized, and will allow me to beget him or her with the Holy Spirit. So that person will become my son or my daughter. That's why God favors you. One of those reasons. And he wants you to be in his kingdom, of course, for all eternity. And he favors you because he's creating in you his perfect and righteous character. And that favor allows you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He even favors you in trials. Let's turn to Second Corinthians, the 12th chapter. Second Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul went through quite a few trials. You know he begged God for deliverance from the specific one. Second Corinthians 12. Starting with verse 9. Well, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 7. The thorn in the flesh is a subhead. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. God had given him all these incredible revelations. And to keep him humble, God said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you humble this way. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, the Apostle Paul writes, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So even in the times of stress and trials, 
God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So what is our part in grace? We need, of course, to accept God's grace, rejoice in it, and actively thank God for it. Let's turn to uh, Ephesians, the fourth chapter. So what is our part in grace? We extend it to others. As I mentioned before, here's a colleague of mine over the phone that was just so gracious. Grace can be in the social sense of kindness and courtesy. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and verse 29. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Again, the warning that we read in Hebrews 9, verse, Hebrews 10, verse 29. Do not insult the Spirit of grace. And here he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But the positive aspect of this is that if you are speaking with edification, you may impart grace to the brethren, to the hearers. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. As we approach the Passover season, we think of forgiveness. And we want to make sure that we are actively forgiving and repenting of our own sins. Let's turn to uh, Hebrews, the fourth chapter, Hebrews 4. So you can extend grace to others by... Your graceful, gracious, thoughtful, kind language. And we hear from time to time how some of you have overheard your brethren speaking with crude, offensive language. And if you're doing that, you need to repent of it. You need to clean up your vocabulary. Okay, Hebrews, the fourth chapter. How else can we participate in the grace of God? Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we think of Christ as our great high priest, who's at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us, as it tells us in Hebrews 7, Verse 25, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to what? The throne of grace, that we may obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You need God's grace. I need God's grace. And I go to the throne of grace to obtain it. So cry out to God for that grace that He is so willing to give us. Years ago, my wife was actually a student of mine in Ambassador College and was the class on doctrines of the Worldwide Church of God. I came across a, a paper that she wrote, and it was on law or grace, seven pages. So he's a good student. Anyway, I just want to read 
uh, the last uh, couple paragraphs from her paper. Having tasted that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2, verse 3, we should continue to grow in understanding the truth of God's word, that we may live by it, 1 Peter 2, 2, Matthew 4, 4. When we experience weakness in the flesh that we cannot overcome, we should remember what, the, what Christ told the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which we just read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Throughout our lives, my wife writes, we must not forget that Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, quote, have loved us and have given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, end of quote. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. We must strive to make sure we receive not the grace of God in vain. And that's another warning about our attitude towards grace. We better not be indifferent to grace. We better not despite the spirit of grace. Uh, we must not receive the grace of God in vain. Second Corinthians 6, verse 1. So she concludes, And to the end we must remember and accept the admonition given in Second Peter 3.18, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So I think she got a pretty good grade on that paper. I'm very thankful that she was participating so enthusiastically and did so well. So we know that scripture, Second Peter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So God has called us to be a part of his family and of his coming kingdom. And during the past few weeks here in Charlotte, we've heard messages on taking a spiritual inventory, having a foot-washing attitude of love, service, and humility, our Passover commitments, can you forgive yourself, and are you a true Christian? We heard from Dr. Meredith last week. And this past Thursday, Dr. Meredith also addressed the headquarters employees, as you heard in the World Ahead update about teamwork, but also on preparing for the Passover. And that often the Passover time is a time of test and trial. So all of these messages should help us prepare for the Passover and our Christian life all year round. So when we reflect on the plan and purpose of God as revealed through the annual festivals, we should be astounded, we should be awed, we should be deeply humbled at God's way of salvation. So in just a few days, we'll be observing the Passover. Children and teens will reflect on their goals in life, how they can grow, how they can develop, how they can change. And all of us will reflect deeply on the value of our lives. We owe our lives to the Savior of the world, who died for us, who shed his blood for us, who was wounded for our healings, as we heard in the special music, who paid for our sins, and who reconciled us to God. We are so precious and valuable in God's sight that he gave his son to pay for our sins. Turn to uh, Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 1. Here we have a wonderful promise that God gives us in Romans 1. Romans 5, sorry. Sorry. 
Romans 5, starting with verse 5. And I hope you're claiming those promises of God, that He will shed His love in your hearts. Romans 5, verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who should be which was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Yes, it's that unconditional love. God didn't say, look, you've got to repent before I love you. He still loved us and demonstrated that love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. We're justified by His blood, not by law-keeping. But we need to show our obedience to God and that we are surrendered to Him and we're striving to overcome. And He writes His laws on our hearts and our minds as we live them, as we practice them. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. Verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So God has showered His gifts upon us. He showered His grace, His favor, His mercy, His abundant blessings upon us. And while some, again, have criticized us for speaking too much about Christ and about grace, I think most of you have read the January-February Living Church News 2012, in which Dr. Meredith quoted Mr. Armstrong's letter of December 12th, 1958, and this is what Mr. Armstrong wrote. We do not seem to stress sufficiently Christ as Savior, faith in Him, and then His faith in us, living faith, which is inseparable from obedience. We must remember that the Orthodox fundamental worldly churches and evangelists stress almost solely just Christ and faith in Him and accepting Him as personal Savior. Our more or less general omission of this leads many automatically to assume we preach the gospel of earning salvation by works. To a world accustomed to hearing almost altogether about Christ and a born-again experience, which of course they do not understand, we put ourselves in God's truth in a wrong light. Instead of speaking and being converted, changed by real repentance, surrender, faith in Christ, and receiving God's Holy Spirit, we speak of coming into the truth. And that's fine. What is God gives us? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, verse 32. A man may come into the truth, that is, let a certain amount of truth into his mind, and still be totally unconverted. Let's think about that for a moment. A man may let a certain amount of truth into his mind, and still be totally unconverted. There is head knowledge, and there is heart knowledge. We must not lead people to gather that we believe only in commandment-keeping, which should then mean Saturday-keeping and earning salvation by works. We must stress the whole truth more. Repentance, surrender, Christ as Savior, being changed by God's Spirit as God's gifts, by grace, 
following our conforming to his conditions of repentance and faith in Christ, the change from carnality to spiritual mindedness being begotten, and then the overcoming and enduring and growing life of obedience and living faith with Christ living his life in us. Let's not leave Christ and grace out of our speech and letters. So we must never treat God's grace with indifference. We must soberly rejoice in his favor as we obediently keep and live by the new covenant and the Ten Commandments. God writes his laws of love on our hearts and on our minds with our desire, with our wholehearted cooperation. So God's grace must be active in our lives. And that's what frees us to overcome human nature and Satan's influence in the carnal ways of this world. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. 1 Corinthians 1. You know, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, and in the New Testament, there are 50 various salutations or benedictions, as you may call them, in the Apostle Paul's writings in particular, that start off with grace and peace. So you notice here in 1 Corinthians, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to have our minds more focused on, at the Passover season, God's mercy, His forgiveness, His grace, that we do not treat God's grace with indifference or despite the spirit of grace, but we keep the commandments and God's grace is established through righteousness. God's grace facilitates the commitments we made at baptism and the commitments we've made for the Passover. So living grace actively moves in harmony with God's law, and it demonstrates our obedience to God. It reflects the faith of Christ in our lives day by day. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. We're here in 2 Corinthians 1. Living grace reflects the faith of Christ in our lives day by day. So as we prepare for the Passover, we need to think of God's unspeakable gift. Remember the Greek word is charis, and it shows God's grace, His gifts, His mercies, His benefits, His blessings. Second Corinthians, the ninth chapter. And the context here is the gifts that we're going to be uh, sent to another a church area. And so the Apostle Paul emphasizes the cheerful giver here in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So giving is an act of faith. That You realize that God owns the universe. He owns the air you breathe. He owns the water you drink. He owns you because Christ has paid for you by his shed blood. 
So he tells us here, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you will always have all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Well, then he concludes this section. In verse 14, and by their prayer for you, he was the Corinthian church, was to give a gift to another group who longed for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Now, can we say that about our congregation? Can our congregations around the world say that other congregations recognize the grace of God in you? I hope so. And I know that all of us, have, many of us, if not all, have demonstrated that we have surrendered our lives to Christ, that we are in God's work till the end, that whether we live, we belong to the Lord. Whether we die, we belong to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We've made that commitment. And at Passover, we'll renew those commitments and thank God for the unspeakable gift, as he mentions here in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In the uh, King James Version, it's an unspeakable gift, I believe, is mentioned. So we are thankful to God for the work he's given us. We know that we have to avoid having a, a superstitious bias against grace and realize that biblical grace, God's grace, is his way of life. Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And we also want to actively speak that we, our words are even gracious and that we administer grace to the others, even by our communications. And we realize that we are not under the law, that we are not under the penalty of the law, but we are under God's grace because we have repented and we have been forgiven of our past sins. Let's turn to Galatians, the second chapter. You know that by heart. Galatians, the second chapter. We thank God for His unspeakable gift. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. In Galatians 2, and verse 16, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, but by faith in Christ Jesus, it should be by the faith of Christ even we have believed in Jesus, Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For the works of the law, no flesh should be justified. Uh, the New King James has it incorrectly. The authorized is the faith of Christ in verse 16. That man is not justified by the works of law, but by faith of Christ. Then we come to verse 20. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. You just think, as Dr. Meredith was mentioning in the sermon last week, about the pain and the agony of being crucified. Think of yourself symbolically or even visually being crucified with a nail through your hands and through your feet and just struggling hour after hour in pain and in agony. Afterwards, after having been, of course, as Jesus was, scourged with cut and bloodied bodies. And that uh, Isaiah 53, that by his stripes, by his wounds, as we heard in the song, by his stripes we were healed, we have been healed. But if you've been crucified with Christ, then you're no longer attracted by 
the temptations of the world and society and Satan. So we have to think about that at Passover. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, it should read, as in the King James. But notice the last part of that. Who loved me and gave himself for me. You have a personal relationship with your great high priest in heaven. He knows you. God knows every hair on your head. And as you take the Passover, just think of your Savior in heaven looking down on you and smiling on you, knowing that he loved you and gave himself for you. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, that is, keeping it externally, then God died in vain. No, righteousness comes through faith in us, which is keeping God's law. Not the, the Jews were just trying to keep the law by human effort. And God is saying, no, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we know that, of course, because the Apostle Paul said time and time again that the law is holy, just, and good. Let's just turn back there briefly. And we think that the Apostle Paul was felt crucified with Christ. He'd gone through all kinds of pain and suffering, and he realized that the spiritual values were so much higher than the fleshly values. Romans, the seventh chapter, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. And we again think of our human nature and realize God is in the process and we'll be rehearsing those lessons through the days of unleavened bread that God is replacing human nature in us with godly nature. And it's so wonderful to see brothers and sisters in Christ who have that godly nature, who radiate love and joy and peace. I've told you before so many times, having visited our brethren dying of cancer in the hospital and, and seeing the maturity of the depth of love and joy and peace in their smile and their life, even though they only had a few more days to live. And they'd come to the place of that maturity. And so he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, But I see another law, my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Verse 25, Romans 7. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, that's how we're going to be saved, as we read in Romans 5, verse 10. Before, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. But then he goes on in chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit because you have committed yourself to have that repentant attitude always to the very end of your life, a teachable attitude always to the end of your life. We thank God for his gifts, his unspeakable gift. 
Well, that's how you can live by faith, is by the grace that God gives you. And we'll be singing hymn number 55 about Mount Zion. And there's that one line in the hymn that says, Grace which, like the Lord the giver, ever flows from age to age. The last verse in the Bible, let's turn there and read it, because I've uh, tested you on this several times, and I think uh, our congregation has grown from only five people knowing. Verse 21 of chapter 22 to 12, the last time I took the survey. I won't uh, take a survey this time. But Revelation 22, yes, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God has given us that grace. But as we heard about in the sermonette, that we look forward to the coming of Christ. And so the Apostle John writes in verse 20 of Revelation 22, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That should be our attitude. And if you've never said that, you need to think about that, particularly as we approach the spring festival. The last verse in the Bible, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, brethren, as we rejoice in this festival season, thank God for His mercy. Thank God for His forgiveness. Thank God for His continuing grace. And may grace ever flow from you. As the Apostle Paul said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a wonderful spring festival season.